hello, and welcome to this very special episode of Cindy's Celebrity Corner, our holiday episode, our entertainment episode. And it's a very special episode because you're going to enjoy incredible stories, very uh, rarely told behind the scenes with some of today's legends in theater, in movies, and in books. Before we begin, I want to thank you once again for making our show one of the most listened to shows Saturday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Time in the Tri-State area on 620 a.m., 1640 a.m., on FM 93.5, high digital. And, of course, to our international audience who download us through iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, uh, Apple and Google Podcast, of course, in Israel through Jewish Podcast through Talkline Network Radio, and on my own website, Cindy's Corners. I can't thank you enough, and I hope that this episode is just a little gift that you can enjoy. So sit back, stay tuned, and coming up, a really in-depth conversation with really one of the leading authorities on everything entertainment. You know him from his best-selling books. You know him from his columns in the New York Post and, of course, from his morning show every day from WOR, Michael Riedel. Welcome back to this very special episode of Cindy's Celebrity Corner. Joining us is one of our favorite guests. You all know him, Michael Riedel. He's no stranger to any of you from the New York Post, from his very popular show, Len Berman and Michael Riedel in the morning on WOR. And I am recommending, and you could still get it regardless of when you hear this, get the book Singular Sensation and Razzle Dazzle. I saw the cutest idea. If you can't get uh, the book to anybody on time because of ordering and delivering, take a picture of the book. Put it in the card and tell people it's on its way. It is the best book or the best two books about theater. And nobody knows theater, movies, television, anything going on better than Michael. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Well, it's that time of year. We call it, I guess, award season that started probably with the People's Choice Awards in late November when it goes to the Oscars in February. And every there's headlines in every uh, part of uh, the arts, movies, television, and theater. If you had to summarize 2021 as far as uh, movies, theater, and television, how would you describe it in a few sentences? Well, I would say um, a tentative comeback, uh, though we do still lurch around and sometimes find ourselves in the dark. I think there was a great hope, especially uh, in the movie theaters and the Broadway theaters, that once we all got vaccinated, life would uh, return to what it was before the pandemic. But as we know now, with all of the closings of so many Broadway shows, every day you read another show is going to shut down for two days, three days, four days, because of an outbreak of COVID in the cast. So Broadway is by no means out of the woods. And the movie theaters, if you look aside from Spider-Man, which did very, very well, uh, West Side Story, which I think is absolutely terrific, is a total dud, is a complete dud. It got rave reviews. It has been nominated for all sorts of awards. Um, but I think the problem for the movies is that 
if you have movies for adults, such as West Side Story or um, uh, the Licorice movie, what is that called? Licorice Pizza. Licorice Pizza. Both got terrific reviews, but both are just duds at the box office. So I'm going to add uh, Nightmare Alley to that also. Yeah. But what, unfortunately, that's because I think many adults, with good reason, are still afraid to go to a movie theater and sit with a bunch of strangers, um, which means that Hollywood will take away from that, that the kids aren't afraid to do anything because the kids are out and about doing what they want to do because they're going to Spider-Man. Adults really are not going to Spider-Man unless you're a, uh, an adult who uh, hasn't grown up yet. So Hollywood will continue to put its money behind action pictures, behind Marvel heroes and DC comics, and a big budget, finely done movie such as West Side Story, studios will not take a chance on that anymore because they realize that the audience for that movie is not there. When will that audience be there? Who the hell knows? When will COVID be over? I can't say. I think Broadway's having the same issue right now. The big shows, Wicked, Hamilton, even though both of those shows have closed down because of COVID outbreaks, they'll be fine. But some of the uh, smaller plays and smaller shows, uh, the ones that aren't for teenagers, uh, are really, really struggling now because the audience is just afraid to go. You know, every time you read there's a COVID outbreak, you don't know the number of people who say, you know what, I was planning on seeing a show next week. I think I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and see how this plays out. I'm going to wait because... A, I don't want to get COVID, and B, I don't want to show up in my seats at 6.30 and be told the show's not going on after I made the effort to get to the city. So let's just wait and see how things pan out in the spring and the summer. But in the meantime, lots of people make that decision. Lots of shows will close because they will not be able to survive. They will not be able to survive January, February, March. As for television... The restaurants, the theaters, all the tourists. I mean, I know like a Hunt and Fish Club already closed their restaurant and others around there are going to close. And many of them will not reopen again because it's just too long. Yeah. I was talking to my friends at uh, Joe Allen the other day and I said, how are things going? And they said, you know, business was really, really good until last week when all these closures of shows started. And they said, and when the shows close, our bookings go because people are saying, okay, we're not coming. So we're going to cancel the restaurant. We're going to cancel the parking garage. We're going to cancel everything that centers around Broadway. Now, as far as television goes, uh, television, especially the streaming services, has probably, and I don't have the numbers, has probably done very well because what have most of us been doing for almost two years now? Sitting at home, binge watching, this, that, and the other thing. I mean, I, I went through uh, The Sopranos because I'd not seen all the episodes. I went through that. And uh, I went through Fauda, which I love. And then I discovered this new show uh, written by Leo Raz, who did Fauda, called Hit and Run. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reviews were kind of spotty on it. But I got to tell you, I've watched the first three episodes and they're riveting. So we'll see. Yeah, apparently it may go off the rails, but, uh, but I'm it watching. It does. I'm, and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but you brought up West Side Story. I guess we have to talk about the headlines because I'm sure you have some great personal stories about Stephen Sondheim. And uh, I think... How could I interview you and not talk about Stephen Sondheim? Well, he and I, we certainly were not friends. I can't pretend as every writer in the New York Times says, oh, Steve and I, we went to the zoo together. Oh, we used to get drunk together. We would go to dinner together. Everybody at the New York Times claims to have been Steve Sondheim's best friend. He did not have a lot of friends. The guy was pretty guarded. And I was never a Sondheim suck-up. 
the way a lot of people at the New York Times are. I certainly admired the work, and some of the songs he wrote are some of the most glorious songs in the um, the canon of uh, of of great songwriting. And he certainly is up there with uh, Oscar Hammerstein, Richard Rogers, Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, and all of them. But I always found, <clears throat> except for a couple shows, I always found that the shows themselves never lived up to the scores. So I've seen Follies maybe five, six, seven times. I can't remember how many times. And it's a great score. But uh, James Goldman book, James Goldman's book, it's a bit of a soap opera. I mean, it's a bunch of unhappy middle-aged people bickering at each other for two and a half hours. It's a little too much to take. Um, Merrily, We Roll Along, a terrific score. And I've seen that show done three or four times. Uh, and it goes backwards in time, right? So you see the people as they are today. And then at the very end, you see them as they were when they were just setting out. And it, it's moving in that sense. But again, it's a lot of people bitching at each other for whatever particular That's reason. That's what it is. He, people, either you loved him or hate him because everything about his shows was so dark. Which brings me to Company and Patti Lapone, which she got great reviews with that. Is that going to survive this now? I hope so. Although they've had to shut down. I think they shut down because of food poisoning. I don't know why you would shut down the show because of food poisoning, but everybody's so terrified. I know. I think Patti is the draw there. I do like Company. Um, I mean, it's certainly an unusual musical because it has no plot, but it has some great songs. And I think, you know, with Patty in it, it should be, I hope, it should uh, weather the storm, but you just don't know at this point. Now, the one, the, the two shows of Steve's that I think are masterpieces are Swinney Todd, as dark as it is, but it is, a, it is an opera. I mean, it is a great, should be done at opera houses in addition to musical theater houses. It really is a great American opera. And that is completely, that coheres completely with two wonderful characters, Mrs. Lovett and Sweetie Todd. And while it's dark, I'm nothing against darkness. I just want the plot not to be about people bitching at each other at the time. And Sweetie Todd, you don't have that. And his other great show, I think, is A Little Night Music. But he had had very very good source material there in the Ingrid Bergman movie, Smiles of a Summer Night. Excuse me. Maybe I have COVID. Glad to take a drink. And when you say that, of course, his most famous song comes from that, Send in the Clowns. Which, by the way, Send in the Clowns, I've listened to that recently when he, since he died many, many times. And it is, a, uh, it is the best song, I think, ever written about two people who should be in love, but can't be in love. Me here at last on the ground, you in midair. Now, I had a, heard a funny story. <clears throat> Steve actually told me this story years ago. So Sinatra did a recording of that um, song. And Sinatra said to Steve, he said, I know what it's about. It's about two people who have just broken up. And Steve said, well, no, it's not. It's about two people who were together years ago who have moved on in different parts of their lives, but who realized they should have been together those many years ago. It didn't work out. And though they want to be together today, they can't because their lives have gone in different directions. And, and Sinatra said, that's not what it's about. It's about two people just broke up, and that's the way I'm going to sing it. And Steve was like, well, he's Frank Sinatra. If that's what he thinks it's about, who am I to argue with it, even though I wrote the freaking song? So, but my, <laughs> that my is real- a great story. So I have to ask you about, well, I let me, watched the movie. I was just going to finish oh, about my, my relationship with Steve. As I say, I was never close to him. It was never a Sondheim suck-up. Um, but I did meet him and spend a little time with him here and there. And my last email exchange with him was kind of funny. Speaking of sending the clowns, that was the first, um, that was the first uh, song I learned how to play from 
top to bottom on a piano by memory. Wow. I found I found the sheet music. I'm throwing things out of my apartment. And I found the my sheet music I had as a kid, and I sent him an email. And I said, "Found the sheet music. First song I learned to play on the piano. Um, if I send it up to you, he lived in Connecticut. If I send it up to you, will you sign it for me?" Five minutes later, I get an email. No, I once asked you not to print a letter that I wrote to Arthur Lawrence attacking Leslie Uggams, and you printed it anyway. So I'm not inclined to do you any favors. I thought, what the hell is this guy talking about? So I went around on the internet. Sure enough, years ago, like 20 years ago, I somehow got a cache of Arthur Lawrence letters. And in it was one that Steve wrote attacking Leslie Uggams, who was in one of Arthur's shows. And I printed it. And there it was. So I wrote him back and I said, I said, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. I was in my rambunctious early column days. So, but I understand. Two days later, I got a call from his assistant saying, Steve is having a uh, very, very private screening of West Side Story. The movie had not been released. And he wants you to, uh, he wants you to see it. So I showed up and it was me, Christine Baranski and Adrian Lester, who's now in, (laughs) who's in um, uh, the Lehman Trilogy. And it was only the three of us. And I thought that was Steve's way of sort of saying, all right, I'm ticked off at you about this, but I still want you to see this movie. And I emailed, I saw it on the Friday before Thanksgiving, and I emailed him about the movie on Tuesday of Thanksgiving. And sadly, I never heard back from him because he died on Thanksgiving. Yeah, you know what? We should all go the way. I hate to say we would love him to, but I mean, he went, supposedly had had dinner with friends. and He was, I'll tell you, I know who he was with. He was at Marsha Mason's house up in Connecticut. Oh, my God. Wow. With Marsha Mason and the director, Jack O'Brien, and some friends. He spent a lot of time with her. They were very close. And yeah, he had a jolly Thanksgiving and she told me that he was in good spirits. A little frail, of course, but he's been frail for quite a while. But he got home and, um, you know, I think he died around one or two in the morning. We should all go that way without struggling. So I'll tell you you one other Steve Sondheim story. So he was really mad at me. Um, He had the show that the last show that he ever did, which was almost 20 years ago now, because he really kind of, I think, ran out of energy and creative juices and just couldn't just couldn't write the way he once was able to write but he wrote a show called um it had many different titles wise guys bounce gold it was about the miser brothers who um built up miami and but they were crooks and i saw every incarnation of it and it was never good it was never good and i really beat the crap out of that thing every time there was a new version of it i just i attacked it and he got a little ticked off about that. And the thing got ugly. He had a lawsuit with one of his producers, and I covered that, and I took the producer side. So there was a reason why he uh, you know, wouldn't really talk to me for a while. And then once I went to see Follies at um, City Center with, um, oh, um, what's her name? She was in Wonderful Town, uh, very fine. She was in the King and I revival, very fine actress. Um, oh, so <laughs> I know who, I could see her face. It's not Keely O'Hara. No. She was in Passion. She was in Steve Sondheim's Passion, too. Um, it was, oh, God, it'll come to me. I, I haven't seen her in a while, actually. Um, oh. Okay, well, we'll get back. We'll figure we'll, it we'll out. Come up with, we'll come up with them then. We're doing anyway. just a half hour on Steven Sondheim. That's great. We didn't even get to the rest of the movie. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, you can ask me. But I was just going to say so I went to see it <clears throat> with her. Was Follies at Encore City Center, and it was a terrific production, terrific production. 
And it reminded me the brilliance of the score. So at the intermission, I walked across the street to get a drink at the bar. I'm sitting there by myself. All of a sudden, Steve ambles in. He sits down at the end of the bar, doesn't acknowledge me. And the bartender put his, his, his drink of choice was Kistler Chardonnay, which is about $85 a bottle. Now, normally the bartender would pour you a glass, but in this case, the bartender put the bottle in front of Steve and the glass. And I looked over at him and then he saw me and I said, listen, I just got to say, I know you're not talking to me, but that score to Follies is a brilliant score. And I'm reminded of how brilliant it is every time I hear it. He looked at the bar. Aaron Maisie that you're thinking about? No, 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 no. no, What, Donna Murphy? Donna Murphy, Donna Murphy, Donna Murphy, Donna Murphy. She was an interesting uh, case, too. I had a run around with her at one point, had a fight with her at one point. But all these things are in the past. But I said to Steve, you know, Follies is a brilliant, brilliant score. He looked at the bartender and he said, give him a glass. (laughs) And so I shared his Chardonnay with him. (laughs) And that was probably, you know, the most memorable Chardonnay you ever had. Right. But he was a genius, no question about it. He was an ornery, cranky, kind of a nasty old coot at times. But I will also end by saying, whenever I needed something from him, when I was working on my books, if I had questions for him, if I was working on an article, if I had a question for him, I would email him the question and he would always get back to me with an answer, always. Even when we were not talking, he would still get back to me with an answer. As long as I think I kept it on a professional level and I said, I'm doing this book about this. I heard about this. Can I check this out with you? He'd always get back to me with an answer. And when I was working on Singular Sensation, I was interested in his mentorship of Jonathan Larson, who wrote Rent. And uh, I emailed him and he said, let me check my files. I may have some letters from Jonathan. um, And if they're useful, you can use them. And unfortunately, when he checked his files, he'd had a fire in his townhouse in the 1990s. And he lost he lost a lot of his records because it was on the top floor where he stored everything. And he said, as I feared, uh, the fire destroyed all those letters. So as I was going to ask, and you just put in the perfect segue, one of my favorite movies of the year was Tick, Tick, uh, Boom. I thought that uh, Andrew Garfield was amazing in it. Did you see it? I did, yes. Um, he is very good. And it, it does capture a time in the 90s, late 80s, 90s. And I was in the city then. And, you know, it's uh, as I watched the movie, I thought, oh, I remember. I remember those places. I remember the Moondance Diner. I used to go there. I used to go there, too. <laughs> I didn't know, I, I didn't know Jonathan Larson. I never I never met Jonathan Larson. I only heard of him after he died. In fact, the night he died, somebody called me to tell me that he had died. And I said, Who, who's Jonathan Larson? What is Rent? I've never heard of this thing. It was a little show down at the New York Theater Workshop. But I thought it captured the 90s. Well, it is a little bit, though. And I feel this way about everything that Lin-Manuel Miranda does. And Lin directed the movie. It is very pleased with itself. The way Lin is very pleased with himself. And I do think if you're not a musical theater lover, there's a part of me that would say, you know what? So what? So the guy can't get his show on. I mean, he's not curing brain cancer. He's not curing COVID. He's writing musicals. And I should feel, oh, how terrible for this poor kid that nobody has recognized his talent. I mean, eventually people did recognize his talent. Fortunately, he was dead when they did. 
but it's a whole movie about somebody saying, I work in the musical theater and the musical theater is so wonderful and it's God's calling and I really should be given the recognition I deserve. And as a uh, Republican, my attitude about that is, you know what? You are not an artist. I don't care if you think you're an artist. You're not an artist until somebody is actually paying for your work. And up until that point, you're an amateur or you're struggling. And you are not entitled. You are not entitled to be a painter who makes money, a poet who makes money, a novelist who makes money, a book writer such as myself who makes money, or a musical theater person. You are not entitled to a living from the arts. There was no entitlement given to you. You have to do something that people are interested and want to produce, want to read, want to listen to. And until that happens, you will struggle. And there was a sense to me from that movie of a kind of, I'm entitled to this because I'm struggling so hard for my art. And so that was the part of the movie that I found a little, frankly, a little off-putting. And I have to say, Tick, Tick, Boom, it's not a great show. Uh, I saw it. It wasn't, but you know what, I guess, because it's going to segue into my next question for you. If I had to sum up this year, I'm going to say, wokeness is destroying entertainment in so many ways. And as a Republican, I agree with you. I want people to win awards by merit. And I want to see quality entertainment. And I don't go to the theater based on someone's color or age or whatever and the i mean even as we speak the headlines i mean if you know the golden globes are coming up right and they had all that controversy and it's very funny the one person who i thought would be nominated for best actress would be aretha frank uh the uh jennifer hudson playing aretha franklin in respect but with all the wokeness going on I still think the most talented, most in-demand actors and actresses today are, are Frances McDormand and Olivia Coleman with, and Nicole Kidman. And believe me, if Olivia won or Frances won two years in a row now, it's like going to be, well, again, Black people or minorities were ignored, but it's the best performances. Yeah, I mean, Frances, uh, I, I like Frances and she's a, terrific actress, but I think she's kind of playing the same parts over and over again right now. She's always playing poor people. I'd like to see her play a rich person at some point. She plays people who live in live in trailers. Always. I don't know why, but that's what she plays. Nicole Kidman is extraordinary in Being the Ricardos, which I saw, and it's an excellent movie. She's great, but the entire cast is great. Um, yeah, the wokeness is is getting out of control. Um, but the, I have no, um, I have no truck with the golden globes, not so much because, you know, they didn't honor enough black people or there don't be black people on their board. They're corrupt. I mean, those guys, they've been on the take for years. You know, they will take anything the studio gives them free trips, champagne, lavish dinners. So I have no use for the golden globes. And frankly, I, 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 I hope they fall apart and we never have to deal with them again because they are thoroughly, completely corrupt. Um, the other thing is <clears throat> the marketplace eventually will speak. So on Broadway, you have a lot of plays written by minorities, about minorities, starring minorities. Some are good, some aren't so good. The good ones will probably survive, although it will be tough for any play in this pandemic. The other ones are not so good, and they don't deserve to survive. 
And <clears throat> they're not surviving because audiences simply don't like them. My fear is that when they close, and a lot of these plays are going to close, the minority community is going to blame, well, those old white racists, right? White racist audiences don't want to see our shows. Well, that's not really not true because I'll tell you the people who supported the great plays of August Wilson all those years, not African-Americans. They didn't go to those early plays. Right. It was old Jewish New Yorkers who went to the theater regularly, who went to see those plays and embraced those plays. African-American audiences only embraced those plays when they had revivals starring people like Denzel Washington and Viola Davis. Then they went. But when Fences starred, by, Fences starred Mary Alice and James Earl Jones. The and I saw the original one. So, so I, did I. The people who went to that play, they were the old Jewish New Yorkers who went to new plays true. because they were interested in new plays. That's Didn't true. matter if it was by a black writer, or a woman writer, whatever. They were sophisticated, intelligent New Yorkers who wanted to go see something extraordinary in the field. I, I can't agree. And honestly, I, I, it, Denzel Washington, if he wins every time, he, I mean, he's getting raved. I didn't see it, but I'm, I'm hearing he's amazing in Macbeth. Yeah, I have not seen that either yet, but um, it's funny. I, I, I went to the opening of the revival of Fences with Denzel and Viola Davis. And I sat next to the very funny comic writer, Paul Rudnick. And Denzel comes on in the very first scene and he's a garbage man in Pittsburgh and he comes on dressed as a garbage man and he's calling the sack of garbage. And then he smiles at uh, Viola Davis and he had the best set of movie star teeth I've ever seen. Now he's playing a garbage man. So I don't know where he got the money to have these teeth, but he had the whitest glistening movie star teeth. And I turned to Rudnick and I said, this is the only garbage man I know who has movie star teeth. And Paul said, I know. What has he been cleaning? His private plane? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but he is the true professional. And, uh, you know, it's very funny. I got an email today from a Hispanic elected official, who, who and he pointed out something amazing. He pointed at all the blacks that are going to be running New York in leadership position. And he says, where are the Hispanics? It's like we don't exist. And I think that's what's going to happen with the entertainment field as well, because, you know, you, you can name a few. And you just talked about being the Ricardos. And, I mean, that's a great example. Nicole Kidman is playing Lucille Ball and and... Javier Bardem is playing uh, Rick, you know, Desi Arnaz. But, I mean, you can, and West Side Story even. I mean, it took a Jew to make it who's, who's celebrating his 75th birthday, who does everything to it, support it, blacks and it, Jews. And it, it took three Jews to write it. Ex I mean, there's a, and of course, you got to talk about Rita Moreno in it because, I mean, she's like the ever-ready battery. I mean. Yeah, she's great, but. But I mean, I, I really object to something that's going on now, which is to say that people have criticized, what, criticized West Side Story because how dare three white Jewish guys write about, <coughs> excuse, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> how dare three white Jewish guys write about Puerto Ricans in the 1950s? What do they know about it? Look, if you're a writer, you should be free to write about anything. 
And I guarantee you that Steve and Arthur Lawrence and Leonard Bernstein, they didn't just say, oh, well, we'll, you know, write about Hispanic people. They, and I know Arthur did this, they were well aware of the gang violence that was going on back in those days. It was in the newspapers. Arthur spent a lot of time walking through that neighborhood, trying to soak up the feel of that neighborhood to understand what was going on in that neighborhood. And you cannot tell any writer that there is a topic or topics they can't write about. You cannot say that to a writer because that is censorship. You cannot say to a friend of mine, Rick Ellis, who wrote Jersey Boys, you can't say to Rick, look, you're a gay Jewish white guy. What the hell do you know about Italians growing up in New Jersey in the 1940s? If you had said that to Rick, he would not have written Jersey Boys. The point is that as a writer, you can learn about other cultures, learn about other people. And then as a good writer, you can invest yourself and your talent in creating characters who are not from your life. If you only want writers to write about what they know, then every gay Jewish guy is going to write a play about his domineering mother. All right. Every African-American writer is going to write a play about the father who wasn't there or, you know, being a bastard child. Every Hispanic writer is going to write about, I don't know, you know, not being let into some school they wanted to get into. And every Asian-American writer is going to write about how I got into Harvard, but people hate me for getting into Harvard. So you cannot have a society where you only are supposed to write about who you are and your ethnic group. You cannot have that kind of art. Everybody should be free to roam and explore. And if it's good, it's good. And if it sucks, it sucks. And if it's racist, it's racist. Call them out on it. Listen, there are a lot of shows we don't look at anymore because they are have too many racial stereotypes. All right, time moves on and those things don't hold up. You can't tell writers not to write about people who are not part of their background, their upbringing, or their ethnic culture. You, you cannot do that. Or you're going to live in, might as well be in a society that has a censor. A censor who says, right, you, Rick Ellis, you white old Jewish guy, you want to write about a black character? No, out, can't do it. Lynn Nottage, you want to write about a white person? How do you know about white people? You have to stick to blacks. Boom, you're done. It's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. So I'm going to take that to the next segue into television a little bit. I have to tell you, I don't watch a lot of TV, although some people think I might, but I end up at two o'clock in the morning thinking and what's going to happen the next day. And I end up watching TV and my two favorite shows happen to be tied to people on CNN, Jake Tapper uh-huh. and Brian Seltzer. And that was the morning show and uh, American Crime Stories Impeachment. Uh, and you know, you talk about award winning and stuff. I was in shock that impeachment, the actors did not really get nominated for awards. I don't know if you know much about it. It was the Monica Lewinsky story. You know, I think the Monica Lewinsky story is difficult for a lot of, uh, a lot of liberals in the, uh, in the media and in the entertainment business, because let's face it. And I think they want to forget this. Bill Clinton, who was a total sleaze bucket, remember, they rallied around him when the Monica Lewinsky stuff came out. They supported him. He survived because of the mainstream media establishment and the entertainment establishment. I think it was Linda Bloodworth Thompson who wrote um, Designing Women. I can't remember. That's right. 
those people who today want to hashtag every man out of existence who can't wait to destroy somebody's reputation, even though nothing has been proven in the court of law, we knew what Bill Clinton did with Monica Lewinsky. Those people rallied around him because he was one of their own. And they only want to deal with hashtag me too when it's against Republicans. Then they will gleefully take that person down. So I think Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky scandal remains a source, a source of acute embarrassment for a lot of people in the entertainment world. But the because acting it, was great in it. I mean, Clive Owens, Bill Clinton, I, I, oh my God. It was great. I didn't see it. I mean, I have no desire to see anything about the Clintons because I think they're the most money-grubbing people on the planet. Uh, totally. So it is award season. What are some of the predictions that you think, who are going to be some of the award winners that you see? Well, I certainly would hope that they recognize um, West Side Story as a terrific movie. And um, the woman who plays uh, the Cheetah Rivera part, uh, her name eludes me right now, but she's... Is that, uh, Ziegler, I think her last name is. Madeline Ziegler? Or Ziegler? No, no. No, no. She's, no, no, she's the main. She's Maria. Oh. She's very good, too. And I think she should be nominated. And the guy who plays opposite her, I can't remember his name either, but he, he should be nominated. And But the woman who plays... Um, who plays the <clears throat> Rita Moreno character in the movie... And the woman who plays uh, the Cheetah Rivera character, I like it here in America, is absolutely terrific. And there's a very interesting thing that's going on there that a lot of people have not picked up on. She is both Puerto Rican and black. And that makes her a bit of an outsider, which is interesting. If you look at the script closely, uh, you don't know who her parents are, but she's de definitely there's a scene in it where she does say, I'm not, I'm not as Hispanic as all of you people are, because I do believe that she has a, she's, she's mixed race. It's subtle, but it's interesting. Anyway, that woman is absolutely sensational. And the girl who plays Maria is terrific. The guy is good too. Um, the, the guy who plays um, Bernardo, who was a Billy Elliot, if you can believe it back in the day. And uh, he's, he's become terrific. And the kid who plays Riff, they're all excellent. They're all terrific. So I hope that they get recognized. Certainly think that, Javier Bardem and um, Nicole Kidman should be recognized for being the Ricardos, but also um, J.K. Simmons, is it, who plays uh, who plays uh, Fred Mertz there? He's very good. He's very good. He's a great character actor. Yeah, yeah. So I hope that they get recognized. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, other than that, you know, I'm not really that up on the on the movies. Um, I suppose I'm like, you know, an older, an older person. I'm just not quite ready to uh, go sit in a movie theater. But to be honest with you, I haven't gone to a mov the movies in years because I can get everything on my computer. So I stream everything. You know, the Ricardo's. So you say that some of the movies that are nominated for Golden Globes are like Coda and Dune and Don't Look Up. And they're all streaming on various uh, channels and networks. You could download those. That's it. People don't know these movies, who's in them. Because people, I think that, you know, competition is great, but there's so much and there's only 24 hours in a day. Well, I mean, listen, I mean, you can stream Dune, but honestly, I think it takes about three weeks to watch. So I'm not going to be streaming that one anytime soon. Um, but I'm waiting for the Ricardos to watch it again. It's going to drop, I think, tomorrow. Yes. 21st on Netflix. 
<coughs> excuse me, so I'll watch it there. I just don't, I don't really go to the movies anymore, especially here in New York City, because Times Square is a little, little skeezy these days. And I really have no desire to go sit in the AMC movie theater in Times Square when you walk down 42nd Street and you feel, God, this is the 42nd Street of Midnight Cowboy. So I don't have any desire to spend too much time up there. I'd rather just stream everything here and be content with watching it on my uh, computer or my, or my television. And, and you're now, lucky you probably you get a lot of things <laughs> sent to you and a lot of invitations to private uh, screenings, so you have an advantage over a lot of us. What about in theater? Uh, I, I I mean, I guess we. Oh, Sarah Jessica Park is that is, is that show coming back on with the? Her- yeah, well, we, yeah. So so far, I mean, we don't know if anything's coming back on. To be honest with you, um, but yeah, Sarah and uh, her husband uh, Matthew Broderick are going to be in Neil Simon's terrific old comedy plaza suite i will definitely be interested to see how the first part of plaza suite plays because if you remember correctly the guy is a very sleazy hollywood producer who's staying at the plaza suite and he calls up one of his old flames and brings her to the apartment and is essentially trying to sleep with her and the wake of harvey weinstein i wonder just how funny that scene is going to be because he is a complete predator, a total fleas bucket and a predator, which was funny back in 1964 when the play premiered or 66, whenever it premiered. But I wonder how that plays today. So that leads me. I, I was going to bring this up. Uh, of course, the biggest headline right now, when you talk about me too and destroying men, got to talk about what's going on with Chris Knopf. Well, I mean, I do believe that uh, accusations should not destroy someone's career because anyone can accuse any of us of anything. And if, if you make the accusation and the person is destroyed, we are living in Arthur Miller's The Crucible. Correct. So I will give everybody who's accused the benefit of the doubt as our system of justice should do. And unless you are convicted of something, I don't think you should be canceled. Harvey Weinstein has been convicted of rape. Now he's appealing, of course, but he stands charged now as a rapist. Chris Knopf has a couple of women who said something that he did. I have no idea of knowing. I wasn't there. But if we, and I think the press is deeply guilty of this because the press loves the headlines. They love the cancel culture. It's good for them. They love to find any bit of dirt on somebody 20, 30 years ago, whatever it was, and air it. And then the press is so full of itself. When they air it, they they like to pretend that they're doing a service to the world by outing predators and this, that, and the other thing. But just because someone makes an accusation against you does not mean it's true. <coughs> Excuse me. And the press does not care if it's true or not. No. All the press needs is somebody to go on the record to say, you molested me 30 years ago. And I'm going on the record to say that. And then the press is off and running. And uh, there's a case I, I don't want to get into, but a friend of mine has been caught up in this with a couple of people who've accused him of doing things many, many years ago, which he adamantly and his lawyers deny. But it was National Public Radio that ran with the story. And when the lawyers called them up and said, we have evidence that proves the contrary. You have no evidence other than these two people saying that this happened. 
but we have things to say about those two people and why they might have motivations to do this. And the response of NPR was, your client is a public figure. We can do whatever we want to. Hang up. So the accusation is now destroying people. That's right. An accusation that- Peloton ran away from him. So Ryan Reynolds ran ran away from him. And the timing of this with the, the bad reviews for the reboot- the comments with um, Kim Cattrall not being on the show, I it's just it's destroying him, and uh, it's we ha- I I do believe in innocent before guilty, and you you have a trial, and it's amazing. Greg Kelly is uh, defending him. People on Fox are defending him because they they believe in innocent before guilt. It's true, but you know you you. The mainstream media is out to destroy as many people as they can in the name of justice for victims. That's what they always say. But if we live in a world where you hurl an accusation and destroy someone, then we are going to live in a world where we will constantly be at each other's throats. But I think the media, the mainstream media wants that. As long as, you know, it's as long as it's a celebrity they can take down or a Republican they can take down. They're happy to do it. They're happy to do it. I mean, I remember once upon a time, somebody called you up because I've been in journalism a long time and they said something about somebody. He's a rapist. He's a horrible person. He molested me. You'd have to say, okay, I need evidence. Do you have letters? Do you have notes? Do you have back in those days before text? How can you prove to me that this actually happened? And if they couldn't, you didn't run with a story because there's no way of proving what happened 25 years ago to somebody. But nowadays, what the press is doing is you come forward, you hurl that accusation against that person. And as long as you're on the record, we'll run it. We'll run it. it it's the we live in a very sad state. We can go on with this. Uh, just any closing thoughts. And again, I want to tell everybody the best books to read from the most knowledgeable person in theater today, Michael Riedel's Singular Sensation and Razzle Dazzle, published by Simon & Schuster, available on Amazon. Anything you want to close with? Any good thoughts about entertainment in 2022? Well, I do think that um, entertainment will survive, always has. People need diversions from life, but they also need stuff that uh, is important, that... uh, has good moral qualities to it that teaches them about a life maybe that they never had heard of before. Characters they didn't know existed. Uh, stuff that is outside of their own neighborhood. I mean, and that to me is the importance of art. It does take you into other worlds that you would never explore on your own. I think of West Side Story. I mean, what do you and I know about Puerto Ricans and Irish kids having gang wars in the 1950s? We weren't there. We don't know. And yet West Side Story captures a, a, vi- a vividly that period of New York City's history. And I'm glad it does. And I'm glad it does with the the work of Arthur Lawrence and Tony Kushner, who did a very good job with the screenplay. The beautiful melodies of Leonard Bernstein and the gorgeous lyrics of Stephen Sondheim. So, And you can sing every song to it. I'll just tell you a little story about Stephen Sondheim. I mean, uh, Stephen Spielberg. Now, we're both Jewish, but we both think very differently politically. I was in California when his mother died and I was with somebody and he said, we have to make a detour before we go. We have to go to Steven Spielberg's mother's funeral. 
And I watched Stephen with his family and I watched him do the whole ceremony. He was orthodox ceremony. His family has an observant rabbis. And I was standing across from the casket as he was saying the prayer, getting his uh, jacket ripped. And I said to myself, we might think totally different politically, but when push came to shove, we're both Jews and we both would have been killed by Hitler. I'll leave you with this thought. Um, great scene from Broadway Bound, Neil Simon's very fine play. And in it, uh, the mother is talking to her son. And the mother brilliantly played by Linda Lavin back in the day. And she says, do you know when your grandparents arrived in New York Harbor from Europe? They saw the Statue of Liberty and they started weeping and wailing and crying and holding on to each other. And the son says, is that because they were in the land of the free and the home of the brave? And she said, no. They looked at the Statue of Liberty and they said, that's not a Jewish face. We're in trouble again. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, we could always, you're always welcome back. We could talk more and more. Uh, so happy to have you. I really appreciate you coming on. Not feeling great, but the knowledge you give us, I mean, we look forward to having you back and talking about what is playing on Broadway, people coming back to the seats and enjoying the shows and seeing the big stars, because I know a lot of big names are planning to come to theater in 2022. Yep. Well, theater will survive, but it's just going to be, it's going to still be a struggle, unfortunately. And luckily we can listen to you every morning, six to 10 on WOR radio. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Selling a home can be expensive and stressful. Remax IQ has created a smarter home selling experience. Our successful real estate agents in New York will sell your home for as little as 2% commission and get you top dollar, stress-free, and fast. Just ask Joseph M. from Brooklyn. Remax IQ made it easy. No for sale sign. I had offers in days. I saved $10,000 in commission and I was in contract fast. If you're thinking of selling, Remax IQ has created a smarter home selling experience. Our successful real estate agents in New York will sell your home for as little as 2% commission and get you top dollar, stress-free, and fast. To learn more, call 800-800-1372. That's 800-800-1372. We're not a discount broker. We're Remax IQ. Speak with a top agent today. 800-800-1372. That's 800-800-1372. Or visit RemaxIQ.com. Terms and conditions apply. Visit www.remaxiq.com slash disclaimer. Are you concerned about a total media blackout on the books you could read? If so, you're not going to want to miss our upcoming interview with Tony Lyons, president and publisher of Skyhorse Publishing, who has published the number one bestseller, The Real Anthony Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. You recently saw Tony Lyons on Tucker Carlson tonight, and he is discussing why his book is being blacklisted through social media and major media outlets. Sit back and stay tuned. Tony, you've been on Tucker Carlson and you've been discussing on multiple media outlets, publishing the number one book called The Real Anthony Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That is being boycotted and uh, basically ignored by the mainstream media. Tell us why this is happening. 
All right. So let me just say, you know, the real Anthony Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is currently the best selling book in America. It's number one on Amazon. It was a number one Wall Street Journal bestseller, number one USA Today bestseller, number one Publishers Weekly bestseller. And yet it hasn't been reviewed in any newspaper. Um, it, it hasn't been on any network television show. And, you know, basically the playbook has been uh, try to discredit the author, but not address any of the claims in the book. So what's happened is, even though there have been no reviews, there have been five or six just malicious hit pieces written in, you know, major newspapers and magazines uh, trying to discredit Robert F. Kennedy Jr. so that people won't take the claim seriously. But none of the claims are being addressed. And, and the claims are very serious claims. So they're claims of corruption at the highest levels of government and, and at, you know, all of the leading pharmaceutical companies and, and just an incredible complicated web of financial entanglements between Dr. Fauci, other people in the U.S. government, and pharmaceutical companies. So I have to tell you, I saw something the other day. I think they're trying to discredit the book and Kennedy so much that they're trying to say that Cheryl Hines is going against her husband, as if that has anything to do with the book. That's how the stretch is. And you'd think that... uh, with the name Kennedy, there wouldn't be any problem to get attention, to get support. I mean, because that name is synonymous with both parties and of so much history. And yet it it just doesn't make any sense. I will agree with you 200% about the fact that people don't read and know facts. They listen or they think they're listening. And that is the biggest problem today. Tell us what are the facts in the book that prove the points of Kennedy that we should know and that the listeners here who support your publishing house and Kennedy on mandates and vaccines as far as our freedoms, especially. Well, so the main point for me isn't the facts that are in the book. It's it's the way that the book was was done. So, you know, Robert Kennedy spent nine months on this book. He, he worked literally 16 hours a day. The book has 2,194 citations. It's more than 200,000 words long. It, it tells just an incredible number of stories about these financial in, entanglements that really prove that Dr. Fauci and, and the parts of government that he represents are really not concerned with public health, that, that these are financial arrangements, that, that these are separate from public health, and, and that that's a serious problem for anybody who really does care about public health. And more and more, that's, that's coming out. But, but the playbook is to, one, come up with any way to discredit Robert Kennedy, and number two, to call him an anti-vaxxer or you know, just come up with some story that makes people focus on that rather than what's in the book. And yet the book is selling. Yes. So, you know, what it really shows is that the American people are fed up with censorship and they're fed up 
with corruption and with lies. And and they know that there have been lots of lies. I mean, Dr. Fauci has admitted to telling some lies as a way to sort of like, you know, he calls them noble lies. But, you know, can you really trust people who who lie when they think it's best for you? I mean, this is supposed to be a democracy and we're supposed to have freedom of choice. So we're supposed to be able to get all the facts analyze them for ourselves, and then do what's best for ourselves and our families, which I'm sure is what your listeners want to do. So, you know, this is not a question of of left or right, Democrat or Republican, even it's not even really about pro-vaccines or anti-vaccines. This is about corruption and this is about freedom of choice. And freedom of speech and freedom of the press and freedom right. of uh, print. I mean, it exactly. is our choice to buy the book and read it, and it should be our choice to digest the facts versus fake news opinion. Right, and there has to be room for dialogue and debate, and it, it can't be okay to just call anything that you disagree with misinformation, even when that that book or, or that news story, I mean, this book, for for example has a blurb from somebody who won the Nobel Prize. I mean, this is a very serious book. It has blurbs from doctors, lawyers, scientists, and this Nobel Prize winner. So how can that be just totally discredited as misinformation without any reason given, without any analysis of the things that are presented in the book? Well, I'm so glad that you're speaking out about it because many publishers wouldn't speak out about it. They would just go along with it, say, you know, just not support it, just say it was a failure and just move on, especially a fear of the press. But you started the company um, roughly, I would say, almost 20 years ago? Uh, 15 years ago. Okay. But and it's not the first time you've had books like this. But it is the first time at this level, if I if I am correct. Yes. I mean, we've we've published books on on both sides of lots of big issues. So, you know, for example, we published simultaneously the case for masks and the case against masks. And what we found was that there was a lot of censorship of the case against masks, meaning that there were people who didn't want you to hear the argument against masks. And I and I just think that that it's crazy that in the United States you could be prevented from hearing one side of an argument. So the same thing, you know, we, we, we published the case for mandates and we published the case against mandates so that people can look at both arguments and, and have a rational discussion about it and then come to a rational conclusion for themselves. And I think that's great. And I think that's something that's so missing today that so many of us are really craving at this point. We're so tired of not being able to have a difference of opinion or we're so tired of, of having being involved at a family table or friends even. And half the people don't know what they're talking about, but they'll just agree because they think it's the right thing to say. And your publishing house is doing a great service to people by sharing both sides with facts, with noted authors. So, again, tell everybody your website, where they can reach you, and where they could get not only the Fauci book, but everything else. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, so it's www.skyhorsepublishing.com. Tony Lyons, thank you so much for joining Cindy's Political Corner. Selling a home can be expensive and stressful. Remax IQ has created a smarter home selling experience. Our successful real estate agents in New York will sell your home for as little as 2% commission and get you top dollar, stress-free, and fast. Just ask Joseph M. from Brooklyn. Remax IQ made it easy. No for sale sign. I had offers in days. I saved $10,000 in commission and I was in contract fast. If you're thinking of selling, Remax IQ has created a smarter home selling experience. Our successful real estate agents in New York will sell your home for as little as 2% commission and get you top dollar, stress-free, and fast. To learn more, call 800-800-1372. That's 800-800-1372. We're not a discount broker. We're Remax IQ. Speak with a top agent today. 800-800-1372. That's 800-800-1372. Or visit RemaxIQ.com. Terms and conditions apply. Visit www.remaxiq.com slash disclaimer. Welcome back to Cindy's Celebrity Corner. I am your host, Cindy Gross. And just like that, the hour flew by. I promised you great guest, great conversation, and lots of information to think about. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please let me know what you think. You can reach out to me through my website, Cindy's Corners, and email me through there. Or you can reach me and follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Never miss an episode. Download it on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, Podbean, Jewish Podcast, and you can also listen to us through the TalkLine Radio Networks. Thank you for joining Cindy Celebrity Corner. We're All our angles and points meet and where you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy the Celebrity Corner. Thank you and have a good night.